1975, the Khmer Rouge launched a reign of terror that would result in the death and displacement of millions of people. Vana In and his family would escape the killing fields, only to face a new war, this time on the streets of America. Caught between the emotional scars that the genocide left on his family and the gang violence of the 1990s, Vana would head down a dark path as a teenager and into the criminal justice system after being convicted of second-degree murder. This episode isn't intended to be about gang violence. It's about hope and redemption. Vana has dedicated his life to helping others find their place in this world, and in 2018, was granted an unconditional pardon. Vana is currently the executive director of Hope Now for Youth. Good evening. Hey, what's going on, man? Thank you. Thank you for texting me, John. I know. I know how busy it is and hectic. You got kids, you got work, you got all kinds of stuff going on, Vana. So we certainly appreciate it. And then with the time zone, I know it's a little later for us. Our days are settling down. Um, you, it's, you know, five o'clock, probably chaos going on at the house. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. I actually just took off my shirt, too, so I'm glad that you. <laughs> well, yes, sir. Got it. We're good to yeah. go, though. Awesome. Well, hey. Uh, welcome everybody back to the next episode of the C4 podcast. We're going to do things a little differently today with today's guest. We typically have been interviewing athletes, accomplished athletes with ties to Southeast Asia. And a couple of those athletes come from the same area where I grew up, Sacramento area, Central Valley of California, um, specifically Cambodian American Chris Dim, as well as uh, Billy Soxoda, the rodeo cowboy, just as some examples. They both talked about, you know, growing up there in the 90s after coming as young children from, from Southeast Asia and the gang environment. And they both specifically mentioned that and how they had to steer away from that and how, that, how positive influences in their lives. In the case of Billy, it was his mother who actually got them out of the town and moved them to a small rural village or town. And that's how he became a cowboy and a rodeo star. Um, Chris Dim had a really good mentor who kind of took him under his wing and got him on a right path. And now Chris is one of the most accomplished bodybuilders there are. Um, and I remember, you know, growing up there, how bad things got in that day. So before we jump into the guest, I just want to kind of set the stage for those people who maybe aren't familiar with the situation and what was going on in California. So I'm going to go ahead and share some stuff. If you're listening on one of the podcast services, you won't see this. If you're on the YouTube video, you will see this. But what I'm showing here is the murders per year in California, okay? So you can see back in the 60s and population grew, so this is not adjusted for that. But you can see it started to ramp up, a little bit of a spike in the around 79, 80. Um, but really what happened was in the late 80s, early 90s, there was this huge surge of, of violence in California. And I'm not a sociologist. I'm not going to get into all the reasons behind it. Um, but I'm just going to talk about the reality for people living there, specifically in certain areas, and specifically um, the group we focus on, right? The people from Southeast Asia, which most of those immigrants came here after the either the collapse of you know Laos, the collapse of Vietnam, or the Khmer Rouge ending, and that was in the late 70s, you know, 80s, like that time frame. So the people that were essentially caught up in this 90s violence were usually born like say the 70s, maybe the late 80s. Uh, they were those first generation of kids that came at very young ages, or maybe were born here, but their parents had been here for a year or two, something along those lines. And just due to their economic situations, were in the neighborhoods most affected by this. So that's what we're here to talk about, um, this surge in violence and how it really impacted the Southeast Asian community overall throughout California, throughout the Central Valley, Sacramento, Fresno, Stockton, those areas. And I just pulled up some old headlines because this got me thinking back to when I was a teenager. I, I graduated high school in 93, right when all this was going on there in Sacramento. But here's some examples of the headlines we would see. Um, several high profile um, cases, you know, at that time we had, for example, the Stockton schoolyard massacre where a guy walked on the playground in Stockton um, and, and shot 30 kids. He was specifically targeting uh, kids from Southeast Asia. I guess he, he felt um, like the, their parents were coming and taking the jobs and taking over his neighborhood or something. He went to this elementary school and he came and shot uh, mainly Cambodian, Vietnamese, and maybe Lao kids um, in that rampage. Um, the other thing, there were, there were gang-related 
uh, shootings all over California. A lot of people think of it as th things that would happen in LA and those big cities, but it was in the small towns of the Central Valley as well. Started to really feel this violence. So a lot of people got caught up in it and we've seen both sides of it. We, you know, I personally know people who've been impacted by getting shot as well as uh, watch somebody get sentenced at 18 years old to 70 years in prison uh, due to some of the hard gang statutes that they brought down in the 90s. And there's one, one law um, specifically that came about in the 90s with that, with that surge of violence. Um, a lot of tough laws were passed to try to get it under control. And one of them was in 1996, the Clinton administration passed the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigration Responsibility Act. And what that did was it essentially aided the deportation of criminal aliens. So people who are non-US citizens um, were, were more subject to, to deportation. It did not affect the Southeast Asian community at all at that time because there were no, there were no treaties with Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia at that point. Um, there still is no treaty with Laos in, in regards to this. So you, it's, very, it's very hard to deport somebody to Laos. Um, but initially the law looked like it was a success. They were deporting, like I remember Italian mafia guys, right? Getting sent back to Italy and they're showing it on the news and look at this great law. We're getting these guys out of our country. Uh, and, and, but years later, it would be years later where Cambodia and the US kind of normalized relations. And then they actually signed a treaty between the two countries. And then that paved the way for deportations. And I think what the difference is between say those Italian mafia type guys that came over here voluntarily from Italy or whatever, uh, the people who were caught up in the deportations from the Cambodian community were really those kids that came at say one, two, three years old. And their parents were brought here and put in these really rough neighborhoods uh, coming from really rough situations such as the Khmer Rouge bringing things like PTSD, you know, they, they had just been subject to war. Um, the kids that were a little older were born here, right? It was those from the 70s, maybe 1980, like that, that were born in, in some cases, not even born in Cambodia, born in a refugee camp or born in, I know, I have one friend who was subject to deportation, got out of it, but he was born in transit. He was born in Vietnam after his family left Cambodia and fled to get out of the country. And he just happened to be born before they got to a refugee camp when they're transiting through Vietnam. So weird things like that, where you had people that have never been to a country in their entire life being deported <laughs> to a country they've never seen. Um, so it was one of the unforeseen, I think, circumstances of what maybe some people thought was a good law, like get these mafia guys out, right? Get these other hardcore criminals out. There was a small group of people that were caught up in it um, that nobody really foresaw coming. Things have kind of changed and there's, there's a lot going on to, to help these individuals. Um, and we have one of these individuals on today with us. Today's guest is Vana Inn. Um, he unfortunately grew up in the Central Valley of California as well, was caught up in this violence, um, but did receive a pardon for, for his crimes and is, is no longer subject to deportation. So we're here, we're very excited to have Vana because we wanted to make sure we told the entire story um, of the Southeast Asian diaspora, not just all the positive stuff behind the athletes, but what happened when things go the other way. So I'm going to turn it over to my co-host, Coach Handeka, and he's going to introduce Vana and, and get the interview going. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another. My name is Coach Handetka, and welcome to another episode of C4 Podcast, uh, Southeast Asian Oh my God, Southeast Asian athletes, you know, achievement through adversity. So while Vana is not an athlete per se, I believe it was important, John, I believe it was important to bring him on here uh, for him to tell us, you know, to tell us about the adversity he went through, um, what he did to overcome that, and, and also what he's doing now. You know, what, what is he doing as far as giving back? I mean, as athletes, yeah, we win titles and all that stuff. And, and it's a great accomplishment. It, we set goals and we accomplish them. But it's really, it, it doesn't do much for the rest of the world if we don't tell of our experience and tell of our stories. And, you know, pick another person, change people's lives. That's what we're trying to do here. So having said that, Vana, welcome to the show. I want to start with asking you, you know, asking you about Cambodia, uh, your family, family life, the escape, and then how you guys uh, uh, settled here in, in the United States. 
Well, thank you, Cole, and thank you, John, for allowing me to be here. I, I did have dreams of being the first Cambodian running back in the NFL. All right. Oh, man, I, I ate and I slept and I breathed football. Um, right now, I'm 46, so I am, I'm on the roster of an Asian basketball league, but I'm not playing because I pulled a hand a couple of weeks back. Oh, so I'm definitely trying to live my glory days as a former athlete. But, hey, I was the starting quarterback when I was in prison. So. Okay. <laughs> hey, was that, was that very much like that movie, The Longest Yard? And any similarities? What, what did that oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, so in, in where I was at, we didn't have tackle. We had flags. But down in Fred C. Nellis and some of the other institutions, they actually had tackle. Oh. And Gridiron oh. Gang, and Gridiron Gang, that's like, that's actually true. They were playing football with some of these leagues. So, so yes, a lot of those things. And we played intramurals. And I was like, I think the first Cambodian all-star in basketball in, in the youth. Right. Right. Yeah, man. So, awesome. but anyways, no. So, life in Cambodia, I was, I was one of those that were in transit. I think my, so my dad was in the army, the Cambodian army. And the southern part of Vietnam has been traditionally in the past Cambodia's land. And we gave it away, politics, kings, marriages. And so in southern, Cam in southern Vietnam, there's still a big contingent of Cambodians there. And so most of the Cambodians that live there are bilingual. So both of my parents uh, are bilingual. My mom, when she was alive, spoke Vietnamese. My three oldest brothers, they speak Vietnamese and Cambodian. And so the three older brothers were born in Cambodia. And the three younger siblings were born in Vietnam. And so I was born in a village called Phnom Thao. And Phnom just essentially means hills or mountains. And I don't know what Phnom means, but there was other two other Phnoms, two other mountains in that area. So I was born somewhere between most likely 75 and 77, but I am thinking 1977. And because we made it to a refugee camp in 1978. And we were only in the refugee camp in Thailand for about four months. And so in April of 1978, we landed in America. So I have no recollection of Cambodia or Vietnam, but I remember being in the fifth grade telling the teachers, yes, I remember a helicopter came and rescued <laughs> us and got us out of Vietnam. So I'm just lying and telling stories about what I thought uh, things were like, but I actually have no recollection of Cambodia or Vietnam or the Thai or the refugee camps in Thailand, my first recollection of memory is probably in Houston, Texas. So we landed in America of April 1978, resettled to Houston, Texas, and we stayed in Houston, Texas from maybe 78 to about maybe 1986. Okay, all right. So Houston's a large city. Um, what was it like? You were pretty young there too. But what was it like growing up there? And tell us about your life in Houston. So in Houston, we were resettled to, of course, into the projects. And so it's, it's called the Fourth Ward, and it was called Allen Parkway. So it was essentially it was a project. It was the slums where they, by that time, when we arrived, there were already Vietnamese refugees there. So there were Vietnamese refugees. They resettled a lot of Cambodian refugees. And a lot of the low, it's, and it was essentially low income housing. And my family tells stories that one of the first few weeks that we were there, neighbors had already burglarized our house. Mm. It was there in Allen Parkway in the fourth ward in the, in the slums that I got my foot ran over. And well, and so just lots of trauma and just lots of dealing with life in a new land, right? It's every refugee's story from Southeast Asia, new land, new language, just new everything. And growing up, I, it exasperated the domestic violence. Mom and dad, they were already physically and emotionally abusive in Vietnam and Cambodia. And so you multiply that by the trauma of getting resettled halfway around the world with a language that you do not know, it just made things worse. So I would say every abuse that you can think of that can go on in a traumatized family happened in my family. And I think it was so bad that my oldest brother 
up and moved to Louisiana to join Job Corps. And he just left, found a wife and got married, had two kids, had a son and had a daughter. So I became a nephew. I mean, I became an uncle with my nephew at around the age of five, six. And then my niece came later, uh, came uh, a few years later. So I was an uncle by the age of five or six. My oldest brother, he's 15 years older than I. And so Houston was rough, not only inside the home, but you also had to deal with outside, right? Again, my story is pretty common. And especially if you're living in Texas, man, that racism is, if, if you think about it, we landed in the 70s and we were there in the 80s. If you think about the civil rights movement, it was in the mid to late 60s. So we're only two decades away of the civil rights movement. And the South, the deep, dirty South, as some recognize it, it I mean, it was chink, jap, gook, go back to your country. And man, it was, that was pretty traumatic to think, like, how do I tell my neighbors or my classmates, like, screw you. Like, this is my home now. And it's like, and they made every excuse, every reason just to add to that trauma. And right. And I didn't, I was, I wasn't able to articulate it as trauma, but like, man, those were the things that were going on. So not only, not only is mom and dad was volatile, but mom was more volatile. And, and it seemed like she raised the, the young half of the kids and she, she was an equal opportunity um, abuser lover right? That's kind of the tension that we hold with our parents. Like we love them. They did the best that they can and, and not so much to excuse, but these were the reasons, right? And so there's that, I understand the tension that, man, I love my mom. I, I, I love my mom with all my heart, but at the same time, man, she and dad were like kind of the cause of like, they just kind of basically passed on the trauma, right? So if you think about generational trauma, they just kind of passed that on. So that's, that was a picture of the trauma and the violence that I dealt with growing up in Houston. And I would say moving to Louisiana two years later. So somewhere between 86, 87, we lived in Louisiana and went to school there, racism. And I would say this was worse and it was magnified because we lived south of New Orleans and it wasn't urban life, but it was still pretty rough. It was still like predominantly white and African-American and it was just, I mean, it was just, that was just kind of par for the course living in the South in the mid to late 80s. Yeah, I can imagine, especially coming off of the war, right? So a lot of the people there, both white and African-American, I think, saw these immigrants uh, as, in some cases, almost like, hey, the enemy, right? Or what they had, you know, they had been sent over to fight or their brother died over there, right? And, and just a lot of bad blood. And, and exasperated by what was already the culture down there to some extent. Um, but then it's, so you're, you're, you're in that environment. What, what spurred your guys to move out to California into Fresno? So my second oldest brother, he got married to a gal who her family members moved to Fresno. And from what I can gather, Fresno and being in California, they were very generous with the social service benefits, welfare, food stamp, disability, I would say in-home supportive services. So it allowed those that couldn't work to actually work and to basically to live. And so being that my brother was here, he just had a baby. And I think that was like the first full-blooded Cambodian because my brother that married, they were half white half Cambodian and they were kind of disconnected because my brother wanted to disconnect from my niece and my nephew and his ex-wife. And so we moved to Fresno in I think December 87, January 88. And that was Houston all over again. Worst part of town, cheap rent. When I arrived there in 88, I remember the rent was $360. And so, and it was, Four, four complex on one side, four complex on the other side, and it was all Cambodians. And so we arrived. I mean, it was drug dealing. My mom would wash her pants and she would hang it on the fence. There was a there was an African-American gal who was her size, took her clothes and just wore it right in front of her. Like, what are you going to do? And like, yeah. like, we didn't know what to do. Like, my mom was like, like, man, this freaking lady, man, just took my pants and, and she ain't got no shame. 
And you know, mom is just scratching her head like, what in the world did we move into? But it was definitely gang and drug infested. It was, it was bad. I mean, sirens constantly, especially in the summer. So this was, this was, it was at the tail end of the crack era, but it was still very prevalent. Yeah, so I'll just speak on that. So a couple things going on there. Vanna mentioned the crack epidemic of the 80s. And although this was at the tail end of it, in the 90s, we saw, I would say, the bullwhip effect. The children who grew up in the crack homes, right, were now teenagers. Neglected child of the 80s was now the gang member of the 90s, right? That's kind of what happened in, in that part of the country. And Fresno, Stockton, some of the other areas of the Central Valley, as Vanna mentioned, they're very affordable to live and California had generous social welfare at the time. So if you're in a big city like San Francisco, it didn't get you very far or LA, right? It's expensive. So people would say, well, I get the California level benefit, you know, the place that's the cost of like the Midwest or Texas or the South, which is in the Valley. Um, and there are also a lot of jobs, people to just to be frank, could work under the table for cash and double dip, get the benefits. And to be real, you could have a full income for cash and then the benefits in a very and $300 apartment. Right. I mean, it was it was attracting a lot of people and and, and there was a bad element there as well um, of, 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 of low income people problems. Uh, and, and, you know, then with the tail end of the crack epidemic, uh, that, that let's call it that generational lost kids, right. We're, we're roaming the streets and raking havoc. And you saw the, the crime rate spike in the other chart. So, yeah. So Vanna, so you guys settle there in the Fresno, um, gang infested as a child. And then I guess you got into high school kind of tell us kind of what came next, how you did get pulled into that gang life. So my, my brother, who's two years older than I he was kind of lost in the family, right? There's always one who just kind of feels lost in a big family. So he was number five, I was number six, I was the baby. He met, he befriended a guy in high school. That guy in high school is from Long Beach. Mm. And he was sent to Fresno to specifically recruit. He was a recruiter for the gang. And I mean, you know how it is in the late 80s, 90s. Hey, we're not good in school. I mean, athletics were far and few in between people who were good in athletics. But, you know, one thing, man, that they, we were all good, were good at was like fighting back, stealing and, and, and hustling, right? Running the streets. And so my brother, in a way, found he found belonging. We, he found belonging and that was that was his friend. And so he got put into the neighborhood, right? He got jumped into TRG. Another guy that he worked with, he got jumped into TRG. And and they started kind of doing their thing, right? If, you know, you know how it goes. It's, yeah. It starts out as friends hanging out, partying, and then it goes from from that to like, oh, look at those dudes. They're from a different neighborhood, and and then it's just, I mean, we call now is like a, a, I would say like toxic masculinity. Just looking for a place to belong, looking for a place to. Right, just just young adolescent. I mean, man's Lord of the Flies, man. Except it's an yeah. urban setting, right? Survival of the fittest, and so that's and and my brother became and he and his buddies, man. They were deadly shooters. They were fighting, man, and they were like they were getting into all types of things. He went to prison, and then when he was in prison, I went to the same high school, and the same guy that got jumped into him said, "Vana." Hey man, you know your brother. You know, you know your brother's tiny rascal gang. Why don't you get jumped into? And finally, I gave in. I got put in in March, actually this month, back in 1992. And he was, so I like, all right, you know what? And I remember even uttering these words when we were at bitch party at a lake. Like, man, these guys are getting jumped into ABZ. You know, you know they're Asian boys. But you know what? If I'm gonna get jumped up, jumped in, I'm gonna jump into my brother's gang. I didn't realize it was kind of a self fulfilling prophecy, right? I jumped in, got put in, and then I all then I became the recruiter. And here was the line to all the young Hmong Lao Cambodian guys in the neighborhood, right? I said, you got you got two choices. You get beat up and don't get jumped into our gang, or you get beat up, get jumped into our gang, and it's done. And most of the guys, and, and by you know, so I'm 5'10, and by, and I had been 5'10 since I was 15, so I was tiring over these young guys. And most of them are like, 
shoot, I'm not trying to get beat up for free every day for fun for for your guys' music. Might as well put me in. And they didn't know, like, hey, man, like, you know, we go hang out, we do this, and, you know, we, we'll make some money, and, you know, we'll party. And so I, I did that at certain neighborhoods here, a certain neighborhood here, and a certain neighborhood there. We just kind of went around. And so, like, when other people ask, who put you in? You know, they said, Vano, you know, Diamond put you in. And so, and then, and, and it is crazy because my gangbanging career lasted from March 1992 to December 93. So for 18 months, but it's been following me ever since because I went down for a drive-by shooting that unfortunately caused another refugee um, gang member to lose his life. And I went away for that. And so it was like, I'm 46 and that happened when I was 17. And so for the next, for the, like the next 29 years, it's been, it's been a part of my life. And it's a story that, that I choose to tell because I grieve that I was the cause of another young refugee losing his life. Yeah. And so, yeah. And if you have interviewed him, his story probably was just like mine. It, it probably was. And I'm going to just set the stage for people listening who don't know, uh, Vana mentioned acronyms like TRG. So TRG tiny rascals was a gang that formed on the East side of long beach. Um, because there was a large Cambodia, Cambodian American community that set up there in what was predominantly a Hispanic area, dominated by another gang, the East Side Longos, that would you know, pick on these new arrivals, to be honest, right? And I think it from, this is urban legend, I, I don't know if this is true, um, but you know, this, they formed this group to, to protect themselves. Then when they had a little power, right, they goes to their heads, whatever, they started bringing other people in, it turned into a full-blown gang after a while. Then, like Vana said, it wasn't just in Long Beach anymore. They started bringing in Lao kids from the Central Valley, Cambodians in the Central Valley, um, Pomona, San Diego, you know, you name it. Um, it became, I think, one of the largest gangs in the entire state. And then it started spreading to other states. Um, I personally know somebody who went away for 70 years. And one of the reasons they went away for 70 years was because they had that TRG on their arm. And, and, and I, you know, trying to help the family out, um, reading all the gang statutes that was considered like a, uh, almost like an organized crime at that point to where they would, they would, um, really throw the book at you. Uh, and that's what happened in that case. But a lot of kids got sucked in and like Vanna said, it was on both sides, right? The shooter and the shooty, two refugees probably had the same background, same stories end up in Southeast Fresno or wherever. Um, and are shooting at each other. So if you don't mind, maybe tell us a little bit about that day, right? When, when your life changed forever, Vana. And Yeah. So sometimes these stories always starts off with the girl, right? <laughs> there was a girl there uh, who, who like, she was somebody that I was pursuing and, and we really liked each other. And she was there first because the homie that put me in, they were already there. And so this was obviously before, before cell phones. And I mean, the, that was the beginning of pagers, but I, you know, I didn't have no pager. I, I wasn't selling drugs at that level. And so we found out, so, Hey, let's meet over there at the party. And then when I saw, when I went, when I, when I was at the party, I saw my enemies being the big mouth, want to be tough guy that I am, right? When you think about toxic masculinity, I got to prove myself. I got to let people know who I am. I'm Vaughn. This is a diamond. It's, you know, tiny rascal game. So, but, but the thing it was, they didn't do anything. Like I initiated the tussle. I initiated the conflict by disrespecting them. I'll own that. Um, because that's just who I was at 17. You know, I, I wanted to be big back and tough and I want to get my name out there. One guy just got tired of it tired of me disrespecting his gang and gave me a good, very, very good punch to the face. I mean, he, he decked me so hard and I fell down twice. And there was a little scuffle. We, we, we booked, came back to my neighborhood. And then I was, I was furious, like, man, told my brother, and I said, man, ain't nobody gonna do this to Vaughn and get away with it, right? And so I did not know that when we left, some of my homies came afterwards. And when they saw that my homies came in, they're like, oh man, you know what? It's time to shut the party down. But by the time when they were shutting the party down, 
we had got there and we had already loaded up in the car, four of us, 357, you know, Glock 45, and we were on our way. And we made a U-turn. It was dark, but we can kind of still see because, you know, when your enemies were in a certain color, you can kind of, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, you can see that color from far away. And then we, two, two of the guys who had guns, I was behind the driver. And because they basically said, Vana, we know this is your beat, but we got you. You you say yes, we say no, we don't go. I said, man, we're going. Ain't nobody going to do this to me and get away with it. We're going to let them know who they mess with. And so we we went there and we unloaded and they shot back at us. And it was just very like kind of solemn on the way back home. And but then like when I got into the alley, I kind of celebrate like, yeah, yeah, we got them fools. We let them know, man. I hope somebody dies. The next day, the big homie gave me a, an article in the Fresno Bee, man, Vonda, you got your wish. Somebody did die. I'm like, oh man. It's like, I mean, I was angry and I did want somebody to die, but I really didn't want somebody to die. And so I knew that I had to run. And so I took off, I fled Fresno, went to Modesto, went to Louisiana and eventually, essentially we said like, you know what? We got rid of the gun. There's no physical evidence. It was dark. There was no way that they saw who you were and or you were gonna beat this. And, and my mom, she was still alive at the time. She's like, you know what? We're gonna get you a lawyer. We're gonna beat this. So I came back in December 1993 and I hung around for a bit and the authorities came and they picked me up December 29th, 1993. So how did they find you or how did they pin it on you? Do you know? I mean, who knows, right? There, yeah. There's no religion again, like which homie ratted me out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Surveillance. I know they did surveillance. I mean, you don't discover that until you've been locked up and you just, yeah. like, those scenes are just constantly playing in your head. How do they know? That very morning, I was about to get ready to take off, but they do what they do because I know, because they, they did this to my brother. So our, our house was known as the TRG house because it was me and my brother, my homie downstairs, homies across the street at the apartment complex. So the whole neighborhood was full was full of TRG. And, and so that's what I'm thinking. They probably did surveillance. And so they were just kind of surveilling and... And they came and they got me that morning, six Wednesday. It was a Wednesday, six o'clock in the morning. So, Vana, could you tell us about like, like your sentencing and like how you know? Tell us about you know how it was to, to, to go to prison. Like, when did your life uh, turn around? Well, and so I I grew up a traditional Buddhist, and so as I'm facing, so I was facing first degree murder, twenty five years to life. Down, I'm facing five years for the gun enhancement. At this time, it was still early. They didn't do gang enhancement yet. Yep. Gang enhancement would come maybe about a year or two later. And but it was definitely, I sh they should have threw the book at me with gang enhancement because it was a gang motivated um, shooting. And I was in the county jail. I, I was in in the juvenile hall for about a month, and then they transferred me to the county jail. And in the county jail, now I was going to be tried as an adult. At this time, it was 16 and up. They will lower the age in California later on to 14 and up to be tried as, a, as an adult, which I think is ridiculous, right? But, yeah, it's, you know, your, your brain doesn't form until you're 25. Studies show that. And that's why insurance is cheaper at age 25. But nevertheless, I was in the county jail. And I was facing 25 to life. And I, I pled not guilty. So, right, my mom got the lawyer and I pled not guilty. And, you know, I, I have this internal struggle going on now, right? You know, I'm praying, please, like, help me. Man, I am stuck between a rock and a hard place. And then something, I would say, for me, miraculous happened, which would change my world. I become a Christian. And so I end up giving my, my heart to Jesus. And then I go from pleading not guilty to, like, I, I feel the conviction to, to, like, you know what? You're guilty, Vanna. So I told my lawyer, I said, you know what? I don't want to risk taking this to trial because if you risk taking it to trial, they're going to throw the book at you, meaning like, man, you're going to get like 50 years to life. Whereas if I plead no contest, I could have the opportunity to go to the California Youth Authority. 
And so I said, you know what? I'm guilty. Give me the plea bargain, second degree murder with the, with the opportunity for the judge to send me to the California Youth Authority. They sent me to the California Youth Authority on a 90-day observation, psychiatric evaluation. I had a few letters written on my, on my behalf by my white teachers. I reached out to them because you got to have those white, white allies, man. And the judge, Judge Gene Gomes, he sends me to the California Youth Authority, like committed me, meaning if I get committed to the California Youth Authority, I can stay to the age of 25. And then I would be released. But if he would have housed me in the California Youth Authority, that means I would have a prison number. He sent me to Gladiator School. I was, I was excited, but I was still convicted as an adult, which meant once I did my time at the California Youth Authority, ICE would pick me up. So at that time, it was still INS. So I was released on my 25th birthday, but, they, but the California Youth Authority handed me over to ICE, Immigration Customs and Enforcement. And I was, they sent me straight to San Pedro next to Long Beach. And essentially what I did was because Cambodia at the time didn't have that agreement with America, people who were signing their deportation papers was getting released. So I signed my deportation papers in July of 2001, was released October 17th, 2001 into Fresno. By this time, my mom had passed away in 95 and my brother, he lived, he lived in some apartments in Fresno, it was it wasn't near my old neighborhood, but it was pretty it was pretty rough neighborhood again, and so I got out after doing seven years, ten months, uh, essentially eight years, and just kind of like fresh, brand new to the world again. It's like it's it really is like those movies when you get up, man, the world passed by, but like you're still kind of disbelief that man, you're out, you're here, like what I what like what do you do next? Tell, tell us more about that. Tell us more about um, the obstacles that you faced upon release. So one, jobs. Like I tried. I applied. I was like, and, and I didn't know the law. And so in banning the box, like I, I put, yes, have you been convicted of felony? Yes. And I wrote this letter like, yes, I was incarcerated for this, thinking that, because that's what they, they train you in the California mm-hmm. Youth Authority, Gladiator School. They train you that when you go in front of a, a review board, be honest and just take responsibility. So that's what I was doing out here. And nobody gave me an interview. Like I couldn't even get a job. I put in like four or five applications, couldn't get a job. So I would work with my brother doing wrought iron fence. But I mean, you know, I was working for family. I mean, my brother's not going to pay me $6 an hour to work with him. I mean, he, he, he paid me in a bike. You know, I mean, it's like, what more do I want? I got, I got a room to sleep in. Like, what more do you want? But I like, you know, what? I got, I got to get my own job. A guy that I was locked up with, he gave me a card to Hope Now. I like looked at the card, like, man, I recognize his name. I wrote, I, I ran into the an article about Hope Now in the county jail back in 1994. So fast forward to seven years later, I run into to this guy. He gave me the card to Hope Now, and I called Hope Now. Did their like did their training program, and they got me a job in 2002. So those were the main obstacles. I, I mean. I, I, it was definitely an adjustment, but, 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 but I'm an extrovert. And so I just like, you know what, I'm here. I'm going to find a church. I'm going to find a community. And one thing that really helped me was playing basketball and just playing basketball with other Asians, just other guys, wherever there was a pickup game, I was there and I got connected with hope. Now they, they got me a job as a janitor at a mega church at the biggest church in the city. And so I was working like I would get Wednesdays and Thursdays off. So on Wednesdays and Thursdays, I go play ball at the rec league, you know, with, and then on, and, and I be, quickly got promoted because what did I do for eight years? All I did was clean up. So I was assistant, you know, assistant manager, ran my own crew on the weekends. And, and then in 2003, I was offered a position to work on staff with the same organization that helped me get a job. So I was a vocational placement counselor. So I was like the youth of the year. I got the award for youth of the year for, all these markers and all these goals that I, that I hit. And yeah, they brought me on staff and I was there for, for eight years. And when I was there, I took advantage of the flexibility. And so I got my AA, got my BA, got my master's, got married, got my license and just really thrive and excel in that environment. So once I recruited for the gang, now I was, I was passing out cards and flyers say, Hey, we can help you get a job. We specifically focus on guys that have been locked up before dropped out of high school or used to be part of gangs. 
and say, so if you, someone you know has been locked up before, and man, in a, my, in a period of over eight years, I helped place 125 guys into first-time jobs, and a lot of these guys would have been rival gang members. Wow. Yeah. So definitely, that's, that's, that's an amazing story. And then um, check this out. Oh, sorry, Cope. And no, then no, I no. left. So after I got my master's, I left to become a youth pastor and then an opportunity to start Hope Now in Greeley, Colorado. And so my wife and I and our little son packed up our Honda Accord and we drove to Greeley, Colorado and we started Jobs of Hope. It's the same, mm -hmm. it's like Homeboy Industries, Hope Now. It was called Jobs of Hope, focusing on gang members, high school dropouts, and those with an arrest record. We, we did that for three and a half years. It's still going to this day. So eight years later, oh, nine years later, the organization's still up and running. Of course, I'm back in Fresno now. I'm running Hope Now. Oh, yeah, it, it's interesting you mentioned Greeley because I know when they passed the welfare reform in California and a lot of people had to get off those roles and jobs, I think the Central Valley became a big recruiting area for all the meatpacking plants in Greeley. So were you helping other refugees when you were there? So Not necessarily there. I, I got a lot of our guys there and I did meet some of the Karen and Karini refugees yeah. that are out there, some of the Somalian refugees. So JBS, which have all the meat in Costco, like it was, it was a really big plant out there, but Greeley was just like a mini Fresno. Yeah. Um, agricultural uh, wants to be on the map, but doesn't want to be like the big city and has a gang life and it, I mean, a gang presence. And so that's why we, we, we went there. Uh, that definitely had a, an, an amazing story, man. Um, what advice can you give to like, you know, kids that are struggling, like kids that are, you know, in their teenage years and, and are getting recruited into gangs. How do you tell them, based on your experience, how do you tell them to, you know, turn it around or to change? Yeah, I mean, so I, so Cole, that, I mean, that, that is a great question. I'm going to go back to the old me. And I think what I would have, I wish what I, I would have had was, I wish I would have had grit. So Angela Duckworth, she's a Chinese gal, but she has obviously has an American last name because her husband's American, but she wrote a book called Grit. And she said, there's a crossroads between your perseverance and your passion. My passions were sport, was sports, athletics, but every time, every time like something was hard, I quit. And my family, instead of encouraging me to know, you signed up, here's what perseverance and here's what his grit is like. Instead of them encouraging me to go back and not give up, they, they did the Asian encouragement. Like, you suck. I told you you were quit. Right? <laughs> and like, man, you suck. And thinking that that would motivate me. But like, I just like, you know, I'm a freaking loser. So one thing that I would advise young people to do is fine, take healthy risk. And I, and I heard this back in 2012 at a conference. It was about radical discipleship, but it applies to all faith and to all nationalities. Take healthy risk that will either make the world a better place or you a better person. And then I would say, like, find adults that are genuine and care about you because the studies show that if, if young people can find point can point to one adult that cares about them in their life they will persevere and so i would say the advice is don't give up on your dreams don't give up on getting involved in something positive because i got involved in something negative mm -hmm. right and that kind of was a foreshadow to what to the path that i was going to go down i wish i would have stayed with football i wish i would have stayed i tried out for baseball my buddy quit i quit Practice was hard, so I quit. Like, man, shoot. And, and I didn't realize, and I never played football in my younger years. In second grade, I signed up for basketball. I quit. Like, oh, I really liked it, but when the coach called me, I'm like, oh, no. I wish my mom and dad, and not to blame them, but I wish they would have said, don't give up. No, you like it, persevere. And actually, that's what, so what, I'm, what I didn't have, I'm giving to my kids now. Yeah. You know, my oldest does, does basketball. My middle child, he does baseball. My daughter's doing doing gymnastics. And my kids are all doing Cambodian dance. 
and they're doing uh, karate together with a cousin. And so just like, like, don't give up, find something positive, like, don't give up. Something that we say at home now and that was discovered by one of the clients, he says, you will either experience the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. And so I have a lot of regret. I felt the pain of regret. And so now what I want to instill into my kids is the pain of discipline because it's, it's going to reward you. So that's the advice uh, that I would give to young people. You will either experience the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. And all the refugees that have succeeded was they pressed in to the pain of discipline. And I don't know who taught them that. Some people went to the military. Some got it through coaches and, and athletics and, and other peers. But man, for a lot of the gang youth that went down the road that I went through, man, we, I mean, it was, uh, I chose the path to least resistance. And so even though I had some of those passions, man, I just, we, you know, we were plugged into a church, but we quit, you know, and, and I wasn't involved in a lot of things. And of course, you know, gambling is a big part of the Asian community that like, I broke my wrist one time and I was so mad at my mom because I knew that when I called, she was at the other house gambling. Mm. And so I like, and those are the things that is just, that is really has haunted a lot of communities. I mean, gambling is a big part around the world, but specifically with the Asian community. Oh my goodness. Yeah, Every casino has a freaking Asian menu. You know what I'm saying? So. Yeah. So Vana, so you had your life in order. You're helping other people. Things are on the up and up. Uh, somewhere in there, this treaty gets signed and, and knocks start coming on people's doors. Right. Not just you, but other Cambodian Americans. And, and in fact, your sister. Right. Yes. Um, so maybe tell us when those deportations started, how it had impacted your family and um, your personal story with almost getting deported. Yeah, my sister got deported in 2012. And it was really tragic because, again, she fled the home. because My mom forced wanted to, to marry her off to a family friend. And, you know, this is. 1989, 90, she wrote a letter saying, I'm gone, married her high school sweetheart, and he was an abuser, I had to leave him. And then drugs, alcohol, she did a four-year stint in Chowchilla's women's facility. And just like my situation, she wasn't a citizen, she got deported, and she, but she got out, went to college, and when she got deported, she was going to college. Like, she was getting her life back on track reunifying with some of her kids she was getting her life back on track and so my sister has been deported for about 10 years now and it's been rough she's teaching english she's kind of made it but you know my sister's out there alone family members like she did get married with enough with a fellow returnee but that didn't work out so just just lots of things going on in her life and for the she's our only sister so there's five brothers here stateside we try to send her money as best as we can but, you know, my brothers, they're struggling financially as well. And so, and it's hard. And and my sister has hopes that my dad will visit her one day. But I just like, sis, it's just hard. Dad, I don't think dad's going to make it. I'm so sorry. But maybe one day, like, so after, since I got my pardon, I may, actually May 5th or May 3rd, I'm going to go up again for review with immigration and in, and so we did a teleconference with my lawyer, Anu Prasad. He's with the Asian Law Caucus out in San Francisco. I So that hearing got scheduled for May 3rd. And so I'm going to find if I can get my green card back so that I can apply for citizenship three years later. So that's kind of been my journey. When I moved yeah. to Colorado, I checked in with immigration. I've been checking in since since I've been released 2001, 20, 21 years. COVID, like everybody's like, you know what? Don't even don't even check in for right now. And since I got the part and I really have that kind of protection over me. So I haven't even really checked in. And people have been reaching out to me once they found out that I got a part. They've been reaching out to me on Facebook and just kind of reaching out to me. The the California firefighter, the Mian guy, that he was going to get deported, his sister reached out to me. They're in Fresno. And yeah. Like, so yeah, so 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 he got a pardon because like he reached out to Gavin Newsom. So those are just some things that are going on with with yeah. I would even say just the whole deportation pro process I'm, for my wife, my kids, you know, just living for how many years prior to the pardon, just living how many years of fear of getting deported. We actually updated our CV resume so that when we go state to go get deported to Cambodia, 
like we were just prepping that I'm going to get deported. I just accepted that I was going to get deported. And then I, I got a pardon. And so blessed to have a pardon and to not really have that hanging over my head. But I grieve for all the other deportees who weren't fortunate enough to get a pardon like myself. Yeah, and I think the unique situation is, is it's largely those people from that one little window of birth, right? The 70s, around when the time it collapsed. And they don't, like your sister probably had no recollection of Cambodia or Vietnam. And in some cases, there's no birth certificate. They have no documentation. They weren't even born there. So do they even have legal rights? Can they even uh, get back into society, right? Sometimes over there. I don't, it's tough. And, you know, like when you go back, like, yeah, so you got to like pay somebody to get your name on a family book because because that's the only way you can get documentation to work. Like, yeah, it's just it's it's a hot mess. Yeah, it is a hot mess. And and I don't know the story behind the Min guy you you said, but I don't think there's a treaty with Laos um, as of now. I I don't know this. I'm not aware of a treaty with Laos um, that would allow for deportations. They're putting pressure on right. They're putting pressure on Laos. And so, yeah, I mean. Yeah, it's just, it's just, and with Biden, with Obama, with Biden, we were hoping like, but again, it's it's coming up and things were really rough and scary under Trump, but we were hoping that Biden could stop some of these things. So I think there's organizations that are advocating on behalf of deportees, especially with uh, the Southeast Asian community. Well, we would definitely wish you all the best coming up and you're hearing, you know, in May. So yeah, thank you. Great, great story, man. I mean, you know, I mean, hey, we even got athletics thrown in there, right? I mean, yep. you even got tell us about uh, being a quarterback, captain of the team. So, but man, it's just, it's just amazing, you know, very inspir- inspirational how you turned your life around and what you're doing now. You know, that, that's what impresses me the most. It's just like, it, it's not what you do for yourself, right? It, it's about what you do for others, you know, especially when you've healed and, and uh, you know, you, you turned your life around and now the work that you're doing, so... That's, uh, you know, it's an awesome story. Uh, John, you got anything to add? Yeah, no, we, it's very brave of you, first of all, Vanna, to tell the story. It's not easy, right, to air our dirty laundry, to talk about these things. But if, if that's part of the reason we have this podcast. When we started the Lao American Sports Hall of Fame, when we started interviewing athletes, we realized that as great as the athletic co- accomplishments were, there were these stories behind everybody. And, and uh, you know, Co then had the idea to start this podcast and, and expand it beyond the Lao community, which is my wife's from Laos, Co's born in Laos. So that's kind of the community we know. Um, but we, we, we started, you know, interviewing people from other communities that had similar backgrounds like yourself, because these stories, we feel like they just need to be told. Yeah. The world needs to hear them. And it's not good enough for just, for example, Cambodian people to be talking about them or Lao people to be talking about it to themselves. We want a lot of people to hear these stories, and that's what we're trying to do here. Get these stories out so people could hear it and understand the adversity that everybody overcame. And more importantly, like Co said, what we could do now and what people are doing um, going forward, like yourself. So, yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Vanna. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Vanna. Thanks. Thank you. All right. So, so glad this includes, uh, concludes our uh, C4 podcast. Thank you, Vanna, for coming on. and. Uh, thanks John for uh, co-hosting and we'll uh, we'll see you guys soon the C4 podcast is brought to you by the Lao American Sports Hall of Fame visit us on the web at laoamericansports.com celebrating the first inspiring the next